Welcome to Human Circus. Questionable movies aside, the writing of Ahmad ibn Fadlan is probably best known for its vivid sex and violence account of a Viking funeral. That's generally the bit that gets all the attention, in the way that Vikings, sex, and violence all tend to do. But those actually weren't the only funerary traditions our traveler described. We're going to get to the more well-known funeral next episode. But before we get started on this, Ibn Fadlan Part 2, I want to highlight that other one, the less famous Ibn Fadlan funeral, the cult favorite. This is the treatment of the dead that Ibn Fadlan reports among the Gudzia Turks. It starts with those of failing health, this clearly not being a society in which you want to reveal weakness. It starts with men who appear to edge towards death, and in my translation at least, Ibn Fadlan is referring specifically to men, and even more specifically, to men of some amount of property, the impoverished or abandoned to death on the plain. As death nears, the other members of the household keep their distance. Only the man's slaves approach to take him to a separate tent there to recover, or there to die. If he does die, and we're assuming here that he does, then a trench is dug. The dead man is seated there, dressed in his clothes and his bow at his side. A wooden cup of liquor is placed in his hand, and a wooden container with more of the same is set before him. His money and wealth is installed all around him, and a roof is constructed over him, topped by a clay yurt. If he has killed others in combat, then figures of those who he killed are carved in wood, his retainers, they say, in the world after. His horses are slaughtered, as many as he may have owned, whether it be one or one hundred, and their meat is eaten. But their heads, legs, tails, and hide are preserved and nailed on to wooden frames. On these horses, they say, he will ride to that world after. Sometimes the killing of the horses is delayed. It's not carried out immediately as it should be. Maybe there's a sense among the people that the deceased does not need or perhaps even deserve those horses. Maybe there are more pressing matters at hand. In such cases, an elder must be called on to shame those involved. I have seen the dead man in a dream, they'll say, and he told me this. My companions ride before me, and I struggle to catch up. My feet are broken and bloodied from the effort, and I am left here all alone. Once the people have done as they ought to on the dead man's behalf, then the elder will speak to them again. I have seen him again, they'll say. He told me he is caught up with those who went before him. He is healed, and he has recovered. This is what Ahmad ibn Fadlan has to say of the funeral practices of the Gudziya, otherwise known as the Oguz Turks. 
We'll be seeing much more of them in just a moment. Hello and welcome. My name is Devin, and this is Human Circus Journeys in the Medieval World, the podcast that explores that medieval world through the stories of its travelers. As is by this point tradition, this is the part of the podcast where I point out the degrees of deep satisfaction that stem from supporting the podcast on Patreon, that you can do so for as little as a dollar a month, there is no maximum, and that you can do so at patreon.com forward slash human circus. And now, back to the story. The story, this time, is of course that of Ibn Fadlan and his journey north from Baghdad in the early 920s. Last episode, we set the scene, established the context, and followed him and his companions on their plunge into disturbingly cold weather. I talked about how those companions had been made fewer in number by the departure of the jurists and instructors that had left with them. I also noted that they were going without the money they were expecting, that they were doing so, rather more troublingly, without the money that their soon-to-be host was expecting. But they were going. We left them as they dried their clothes by the fire, or, as noted by the translator, that they perhaps fanned the fire alight with those clothes. After that, the march ahead was a strenuous one. They were traveling quickly and with as much energy as they could muster, riding from midnight until the midday or afternoon prayer, when they rested, which is quite a schedule. Fifteen nights of that, and they'd reached a large, rocky mountain, streams feeding a lake at its base, and on the other side of that were the Gutsia. The Gutsia, or Oguz, were a Turkic tribe, And aside from Ibn Fadlan's comparison of a person's speech to a starling that I mentioned last episode, they're our first opportunity to see him encounter people who are strange to him, to see how he reacts to them and what details he recounts. As for the how he reacts, the reaction is, to say the least, not positive. They lead wretched lives, he says. They are like roaming asses. They were nomads, who lived in tents of fur, and more seriously, they were not monotheists. Though they might be heard to declare out loud that there was no god but God, and Muhammad was his messenger, that, Ibn Fadlan said, was less out of belief than it was a way of befriending passing Muslims. He reported that they swore to the heavens when something bad happened. But he said that they did not really worship anything at all, or, for that matter, base their thinking on reason. They were, he seemed generally to have felt, quite filthy in their habits. They did not wash themselves when it was suitable to do so. He says they chose not to have contact with water at all, especially during the winter. Which, given Ibn Fadlan's experience with the frozen beard and near death, does not sound as outlandish as it otherwise might. And they did not seem to appreciate others having contact with water either. Muslim travelers had to perform their ritual cleansing in secret, so that they weren't accosted with shouts, that they had put something in the water and were casting a spell. 
They also had to be aware that other aspects of life might not be quite what they were used to. They were likely to be surprised by the way women might go about uncovered before men. And this wasn't about veiling the face, or more generally the head. This was best illustrated by an encounter that Ibn Fadlan and some of his fellow travelers had one day as they stopped and visited in a tent. They were there with their hosts, husband and wife, when she happened to casually pull aside her clothes and scratch at her crotch. It seems to have been an unremarkable enough thing to do from her perspective, there in the comfort of her home. For the travelers, though, it was quite a different experience. They averted their eyes with exclamations of, God forgive us. But the woman's husband just laughed at their discomfort, saying in effect that seeing and touching were very different matters. Ibn Fadlan takes the opportunity to tell us that illicit sex, though he doesn't specify exactly what that entailed, was most harshly punished. The culprit would be tied between two trees that had been forcefully bent together. The trees would be released, and when they snapped back upright, the offender was snapped back with them, in two different directions, and torn apart. Odd as it may sound, it is a method that I think might have come up before on this podcast, but I really can't remember where. It is recorded in Roman sources, though, and indeed in much more recent ones, too. But Ibn Fadlan's record of the Oguz wasn't all about ripping people in half, jarring personal habits, or poor hygiene. Regarding all of which, it should be said that we are seeing these people through the eyes of a man just passing through, and a man just passing through from an imperial center of power and culture, who surely saw this as very much a place on the periphery of the world he knew and valued. We do see, aside from all that, a great value placed on the role of the host. Ibn Fadlan mentions that a traveler would have a yurt and sheep provided for him, that a total stranger could arrive, announce himself as a guest, and ask for camels, horses, and dirhams. He could be certain that all he asked for would be given to him, but he could be just as certain that all he was loaned would be returned. A host would travel for days to reclaim what was his from a wayward borrower, would ask after his quarry on the road, would, if the man was dead, take exactly what he was owed from the deceased caravan, would, if he had successfully disappeared, take it from his co-religionists. He was a Muslim like you, the man might say. You go and get it from him. Navigating this world, our guide was surprised by the way the Oguz made decisions by consultation and how even the most worthless among them might overturn that decision. But he found, as ever, that gift-giving was what smoothed the way forward. The first leader they encountered, a local man whose power likely did not extend very far, told them that their passage was impossible. Unheard of, it could not be done. But with the presentation of a kaftan and a woven cloth, along with some flatbreads, raisins, and nuts, it was entirely possible. He thanked them and allowed them to go on their way. The next morning, though, more gifts would be required, this time to quite a different character. 
the whole caravan, reportedly 3,000 mounts and 5,000 men, was waved down by a single man, a quote, despicable figure, unkempt and really quite repulsive, a man of no worth at all. None of you shall pass, he told them, and somewhat absurdly, but perhaps out of fear that he had armed companions very close by. They did not disagree, saying only in protest that they were friends of the Kolar Khan, a deputy of the king or Khan, but this fellow accosting them was not impressed by this, not at all. Kolar Khan who? he laughed. Do I not shit on the beard of the Kolar Khan? And then he demanded bread, which they gave to him, and were allowed by this extremely belligerent individual to pass, with the parting words, Proceed, I have spared you out of pity. And maybe he had. And so they proceeded, leaving that despicable figure behind them, and they made their way to one last meeting in the lands of the Ogus. This one with a man named Atrak, an accomplished rider who Ibn Fadlan had seen shoot a goose in flight from horseback, and, in the wording of the translation I'm using, a field marshal, a commander of a large retinue with a great number of attendants and large tents. He held a feast for them with his cousins and other members of his household. He gave them horses to ride and sheep for the slaughter, and they gave him gifts, clothing, millet, raisins, nuts, and pepper. And they watched his wife, who had been his father's wife, take some of the gifts, along with other foods, and bury them in the ground. Through an interpreter, they heard her words. This is a gift for Al-Khatagan, the father of Atrak. The Arabs gave it to him. So far, it seemed so good. During their time with Atrak, the visitors were received at an audience in his yurt, where they presented more gifts along with a letter directing him to embrace Islam. This, he said he would consider. He would give them his answer on their way back through. But then, there was no guarantee that they would actually be coming back through. There was some question as to whether they would actually be leaving Atrak's territory in the first place. That was still to be decided. The ones making the decision were a group of four neighboring commanders that Atrak called together one day. These are the envoys from the king of the Arabs, he told them. I cannot rightfully allow them to go any further without consulting you. A fair amount of what his consultants had to say would have to do with the Khazars, the on-again, off-again allies-slash-enemies of the Oghuz. In the late 800s, the two had been allied in the wars against the Pechenegs, but then, with the following Khazar ruler, the Oghuz, along with the Byzantines and Pechenegs, were at war with them. Ten years after Ibn Fadlan's journey, they'd again fight on the same side, but as we'll see, the Khazars at this point had Oghuz prisoners having been at war with them just the year before. The first of Atrak's guests to speak was blind and lame and had a withered arm, but unfortunately for the travelers, he was also the most important and respected. He voiced his suspicion that these envoys were actually part of the caliph's plot against them, 
that they were really on their way to the Khazars, there to press them into an attack on the Oguz. The only option, he concluded, was to dismember the envoys and take what they had. So that was a bad start. But then, the others didn't entirely agree. No, said the second one, they shouldn't dismember them. But they certainly should take absolutely everything they had, and send them back naked the way they had come. Potentially also a death sentence, given the harsh environment. And the third had other ideas again. The visitors should be seized and taken prisoner, to then be ransomed against those Oguz held captive still by the Khazars. None of them, so far as the envoys were concerned, were good options. For seven days, seven, I can only imagine, extremely unpleasant days, Ibn Fadlan and the others waited for a decision. They waited, as he put it, in the jaws of death. They waited seven days, and then the decision came through. They could go. No doubt extremely relieved by the result. They left a robe of honor and other gifts to that highly esteemed man who'd wanted them dismembered, and tunics, pepper, millet, and flatbreads for his colleagues. And then they left. After this quick break, we'll follow them. Leaving Atrak's territory, they were northeast of the Caspian Sea now, still heading north. They crossed a river on camel hide rafts. It was a difficult operation, in which the hides were stretched out over circular saddle frames before being loaded with goods and groups of people, in fours, fives, and sixes, and then propelled across with makeshift paddles the round rafts spinning in circles as they beat furiously at the water. Around them, camels and horses were driven into the stream to swim. Men ahead, armed soldiers crossed first, for fear of an ambush. There was little more vulnerable than a caravan in the middle of crossing a river, and they were concerned about attacks from the Bashkirs. There were more rivers after that, and Ibn Fadlan lists them, one after another, saying they were mighty rivers all, and each one they crossed this way. They encountered a people known as the Pechenegs, the Bajnak, our guide calls them, and he was not impressed. They were, he said, a vivid brown color, shaved their beards, and unlike the Ogus they'd just left, some of whom, he said, might own 10,000 horses and 100,000 head of sheep. These people lived in miserable poverty. Ibn Fadlan gives little further detail as to the Pechenegs. He spent a day with them, he says. He moved along. But miserable as they may have seemed to him, they were a force to be reckoned with. Earlier in the 10th century, the Russian primary chronicle has them making their first raids of the Rus, the first of many. And not much later in it than Ibn Fadlan, around mid-century, it was going to be said by a Byzantine emperor that the Rus could not even come to Constantinople, either for war or for peace, not without peace with the Pechenegs. The Rus could try to come on their boats by river, he said, but the Pechenegs could get them. Crossing rivers could be a dangerous business, 
but for Ibn Fadlan, it was not the Pechenegs that were cause for concern. First of all, it was the rivers themselves. As he and his fellow travelers journeyed on, they crossed many waterways, each duly listed. But he says one was worst of all. This was the biggest and mightiest river we had seen, he wrote, and had the strongest current. He himself watched as a raft capsized and everyone on it drowned. And that four to six aboard were not alone. Horses drowned. Camels drowned. A great many died. It took the greatest effort to get across, he said. But get across, they did, if with a somewhat diminished they. The other danger, which I've already alluded to, was more of a people problem. And the people in question were the Bashkirs, the people they'd been worried about when crossing rivers before, the people Ibn Fadlan clearly considered to sit at the ugly end of a kind of barbarian civilization dynamic, the ones he referred to as, quote, the wickedest, filthiest, and most ferocious of the Turks. His assessment, obviously, not mine. The Bashkirs took no prisoners when they attacked, only heads. They shaved their beards and ate lice. Once, Ibn Fadlan witnessed one of them fish about in his clothing until he found one and promptly cracked it open and licked it up. Delicious, he said to Ibn Fadlan, or something similar, when he saw our traveler watching him. Or at least, that's what Ibn Fadlan says. He says that they wore a carved wooden phallus about their neck, that they kissed it and spoke to it in worship before battle, acknowledging no other creator. But there was clearly more to their religious vision than just penises, because some, he says, acknowledged twelve lords, of winter, summer, and rain, wind, trees, and people, horses, water, and night, day, death, and earth. And a thirteenth, the lord of the sky, who was greatest, but acted in agreement with the others. The travelers noticed that each clan among the Bashkirs worshipped something different, something aside from the lords and carvings. For one, it might be snakes, or fish, or cranes. That last group said that they had once been broken in battle and already in flight when cranes had called out behind them and caused their enemy to turn and run. These are his actions, they said. He has routed our enemies, and since that day, they'd worshipped cranes. Between lords, cranes, and this he they talk about, however that may have been treated by time and translation, it all sounds like they had quite a lot more going on. With that, Sky Lord, likely something that we would now label Tengriism, and sharing some beliefs and practices with those of the Mongols, for example. But uncredited religious complexities aside, what of all those worries as to the Bashkirs? Were they born out? It seems not, at least not based on Ibn Fadlan's silence on the issue. The danger these people posed seems to have been building in the traveler's mind. But now, he and his comrades left their territory in peace, and apparently unscathed. And they crossed still more rivers. Eight, he lists here, with two, three, or four days' travel from one river to the next. 
The king of the Sakaliba was near. This was the man whose petition they were answering, for Sakaliba, a medieval Arabic term for Slavs, was indeed how he referred to the Bulgars, and he was close, only a few days away. They were a day and a half out from their destination when they met their escort, the king's brothers, sons, and four lords of his lands, with militant meat, bread, and welcome. Everyone was very happy to see them, including, when he came out himself, the king. He met them at two Farsak's distance from their goal. Farsak is a unit of measurement for which I've seen some wildly different conversions, depending on the time period and source, but was historically tied to the distance one could travel in a set time, like describing something as a day's march away or a two-hour walk. In one book, I found it defined as, quote, the distance at which a long-sighted man can see a camel and discern whether it be white or black, or, from another source, that at which one could hear a drum. At whatever exact distance he came out to greet them, the king did so with honors, descending from his horse to prostrate himself before them and give thanks to God scattering dirhams from his sleeve over them, and having yurts set out to house them. It was May of 922, and they had been traveling seventy days since Al-Jurjania. Now, for a few days at least, they could rest, while the king gathered his subjects to hear the letter of the caliph. With that reading, Ibn Fadlan will really give us a sense of the occasion, with standards unfurled, and the king dressed all in black, with a turban placed on his head. He'll also show us more of his own role in all of this, his own task. A lot of this account concerns the doings of a collective we, but here, at the reading, it's very much Ibn Fadlan, the I, that steps forward. We are not permitted to remain seated during the reading of the letter, he announced to those assembled. It was up to him to read such documents aloud, and to see that all was done properly, that protocols were followed and practices correct, even out here among the Bulgars. Everyone stood, including the king, big and corpulent, Ibn Fadlan noted. Then he read the letter, all of it translated by an interpreter. As he reached the words, Peace be upon you, on your behalf, I praise God, there is no God but him. He paused, directing his audience, returned the greetings of the commander of the faithful, and they did, every one of them. As he reached the end of the letter, they all roared aloud, God Almighty, loud enough that the ground beneath them shook with it. Next, he read the letter from the vizier, this time telling the king to sit, which the king did, sitting, listening, and then, as the letter finished, showered with coins from his companions. Ibn Fadlan then brought out gifts for the king's wife, pearls, cloths, and medicines, a robe of honor, which she received, and was then showered with coins by her companions. There was a lot of convivial coin-throwing happening, and everyone seems to have been very content with how the visit was going. Later, they would be invited to the king's tent, 
they would see him seated on a throne covered in Byzantine silk. On his right, his kings, and before him, his sons. They took their place on his left. He called for a table, and it was carried to him, set with roasted meat and a knife. The king sliced off one piece and ate, then a second and a third. Then he cut another and handed it towards someone, a table placed before them to receive it. None took meat before he had. None took, save from him. None ate from any table but their own. And when the king would finish, everyone would take their leftovers back to their own tent to finish their meal there. Here, the king called for a honey drink when the meat was finished, one which he either drank night and day, or took a day and a night to make, the source is apparently a little unclear. The king raised a cupful and drained it. Standing, he proclaimed, Such is my joy in my patron, the commander of the faithful. May God prolong his life. And all stood with him. Three times he drank, stood, and spoke. And three times the company stood with him. Then they parted for the evening. All, so far, was well. It was well, but, as is often the case in these stories, the issue of money and the gifting of it was going to become a problem. It was only three days after they'd exchanged ceremonial greetings and feasted together that the king called again for Ibn Fadlan. This time, there would be no showers of coins. Indeed, it was the very absence of coins that he wanted to talk about. Calling Ibn Fadlan before him, he commanded him to be seated, and then hurled the caliph's letter at him. Who brought this letter? he demanded. And Ibn Fadlan agreed that it had been him. And this one? the king asked, now throwing the vizier's letter at him. Again, Ibn Fadlan could only agree that it had been him. What, the king then asked, had he done with the money they referred to? The king had heard, one way or another, of the four thousand dinars that the caliph had intended to be his. He'd heard, somehow, of the efforts that had been made to keep them from him, and he was not pleased, not at all pleased with Ibn Fadlan's explanation, that he and the others had left early for fear of missing the chance to come at all that the money had been set to be brought after, that the greatest effort had been expended to see that it did. None of it was enough. None of it made sense. Why hadn't the money simply been given to the king's representative? He could have brought it easily enough. Instead, he had all these guests, but none of the money. It was quite beyond vexing, and the king made his feelings entirely clear. Gone was the agreeable man who'd followed every one of Ibn Fadlan's directions. Now he bellowed at his visitor with a voice that seemed to come from out of a barrel, and he placed the responsibility very much with Ibn Fadlan himself. Tell him, he said to his interpreter, that I do not acknowledge any of the others. I acknowledge only you. They are not Arabs. If my master, the caliph, thought that they could have read the official letter as eloquently as you, he would not have sent you to keep it safe for me. Read it and hear my response. 
I do not expect to receive one single dirham from anyone but you. Produce the money. This would be the best thing for you to do. Ibn Fadlan took his leave, shaken, dazed, and in a state of terror. He was, he said, overawed by his audience with the king, by his physical size as much as anything, it seems. Coming away from the intimidating encounter, Ibn Fadlan brought together his companions, telling them what had passed between him and the king. I warned you about this, he told them, as indeed he had, not that it had done much good. For all his concerns, here he was, the only one the king wanted to talk to, yes, but also the only one to whom the king was going to be looking for money, a substantial amount of money that he would have no way of producing out of thin air. It was all of it, more than a little stressful. And that's where we'll leave our traveler this time, caught in an awkward and potentially dangerous predicament, one he'd very much anticipated, but still could do little about. Next episode, we're going to get into the details of Ibn Fadlan's time among the Sakaliba, and I'll probably get to that famous Viking funeral too. If you are listening to this on the Transcontinental Friars Patreon feed, then please do keep listening, as in a moment, I'll be describing a process of conversion with some similarities to that we're encountering with Ibn Fadlan and the Sakaliba king, and talking about some of the factors in that ruler's decision. If you aren't, thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with part three in this Ibn Fadlan series. And I'll talk to you then. Human Circus will return.